Hello and welcome to the Kick in the Creatives podcast, hosted by myself, Sandra Busby, and my fellow creative, Tara Roskell, offering you interviews, inspiration, motivation, and a gentle prod in the right direction. And for lots more information, challenges, and other useful tools to help you get creating, you can go to www.kickinthecreatives.com. And of course, this is where you can also find today's show notes. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Andy J. Pizza. He's an American illustrator, podcaster and public speaker. He's produced vibrant illustrations for clients like Nickelodeon and Amazon. Sandra and I are huge fans of Andy's podcast, The Creative Pep Talk, where Andy shares creative advice. Plus, Andy really knows how to tell fascinating stories. You can't help but find that some of his enthusiasm will rub off on you. We really hope you enjoy the show. So we have Andy J. Pizza with us today. Welcome to the show, Andy. Hey, I'm super happy to be here. <laughs> Great to have you on. And I am really intrigued to know, what made you change your name to Andy J. Pizza? Because it was Andy J. Miller, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, it is well, technically is, but in the art world, I go by Andy J. Pizza. And um, I wish that there was like a super interesting story to that. But the truth is, it, you know, there's kind of two sides to it. One, I have a problem with pizza. And that's true. Like I, you know, some people are like, oh, I like pizza. And, and yeah, who doesn't like pizza? I'm talking about when I was in college, I would go on a string of having pizza for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snack. Like I would, I would have seven <laughs> meals in a row of pizza. I love pizza. I don't know why. Um, I've got a problem. But then on top of that, you know, uh, just in terms of like uh, personal branding stuff, Andy J. Miller. You know, when I go to the gym here locally. And I'm, they're like, oh, what's your name? And I say, Andy J. Miller. They're like, hmm, we have 17 of those. <laughs> you know, little town. So um, what happened was uh, my website used to be andy-j-miller.com. And it was a mouthful and it was super annoying. And uh, then they released new suffixes and you could get .pizza instead of .com. So I got andyj.pizza because I thought, oh, that'll be way easier to tell people. But then everybody just assumed that was my name. And so, so everybody told me that. I was like, no, that's not my name. It's just my website. Um, and then eventually I just gave up and just went with it. Um, unfortunately, now it means when I get invited to an event, they always like buy me like 50 pizzas. <laughs> I'm trying to quit, please. Um, you know, huge amounts of free pizza. It's it's not a good thing for me. Um, I'm assuming at the gym you don't actually say you're Andy J Pizza because that doesn't really. No. I wouldn't want that go down too well. No. <laughs> <laughs> that would not work very well. Um, yeah. So that yeah, it doesn't help me at the gym, but it has definitely helped me online because now, uh, you know, on every platform I'm at Andy J Pizza, which is nice and succinct and very memorable as well. Yeah, it's done all right. And actually, you know, it's it definitely for the longest time I would have said that, you know, what you call your practice doesn't really matter, but actually I think that that isn't true. I feel like a lot of it, it was a lot of things that were a lot easier after I started having that moniker. I feel like it was a lot easier to gain traction in a whole bunch of ways. And so, I you know, I do think that there's something to 
I call it the cup that you put your coffee in, right? Like the every all the artists want to be obsessed with the quality of our, you know, offering the the actual the creative espresso that we make. But you know, the cup that you put it in, the the marketing, the story around it, all that stuff matters because you can't just you know our, us artists wants to we want to pour boiling hot coffee. We want to you know give it to the audience raw, just basically pour our coffee into their hands. And uh, it's not, it's not how it goes. But you got to think about stuff like that. Yeah, you really have. Yeah. I want one now anyway. We've got to come up with one afterwards. <laughs> What's your favorite food? You know, I don't, I know you guys, um, you're in England, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So it could be, um, you know, it could be Sandra sausage roll. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I like I like soggy porridge, and that doesn't really go that well. <laughs> yes, amazing! Um, I love it. Uh, oh my god! The Andy soggy porridge um, <laughs> doesn't have the same ring to it, but I bet it's available on Instagram. Probably, yeah, I bet. <laughs> anyway, moving on to more serious things, you once lived and studied in the UK. So why was yeah. that, and how long were you here? Yeah, so. Uh, uh, right when I was graduating high school, which is uh, college for uh, the Brits, um, my my dad got a transfer in his job and the opportunity to go work in uh, the UK for a little while. And because of that, I could get a student visa and do my university over there. And so I just took that opportunity. I went to uh, University of Huddersfield, which is, I feel like, sounds funny to British people that um, that uh, I don't know, that an American would just end up in Huddersfield and in uh, Yorkshire. Um, and so I, I, I was there, I did my course in three years. And then um, I met my lovely wife, who is from Wakefield at the most romantic uh, place you can work, Subway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we both worked at Subway. And I often say that, you know, when I graduated uh, art school, I went straight into a full-time profession in the arts. Now, the medium wasn't my choice. It was sandwiches. <laughs> but, but yeah, it was still art. You know, they call you a sandwich artist. So um, so yeah, I got married and uh, we I stayed there for, I think, two more years. And uh, we decided to pack up and, and move back to the States. So Can I ask, moved- is, is, is her surname now pizza? <laughs> no, hers is egg. Healthy egg, egg. Um, or tuna sandwich. She likes that as well. But uh, no, she her last name is Miller. So (laughs) I got the the short end of the stick there because her name previously was Callahan, which is a lot more memorable than (laughs) whatever. So did you move back to the same place you originally lived? Um, so yeah, for, for a few years, we did that. We moved back and and we didn't, we knew we were moving back to the States and we didn't know if we would stay in Columbus, Indiana, which is where uh, I went to high school and I was born in Southern Indiana. Um, but we went back there, we lived there for a few years and then we were scoping out different cities we wanted to move to. And we found, um, some, a bunch of great things happening in Columbus, Ohio. The only annoying thing is that they were the same name. So I have to clarify that every single time. And now we have to figure out which Columbus we're going to move to next. So Columbus, Georgia, we're coming your way. Um, not, not really, but um, yeah. So we, we moved from Columbus, Indiana uh, about s- almost six years ago um, to Columbus, Ohio. And we've, we've been there ever since. And we 
super love it here. It's a, it's a great place with a vibrant, um, creative community. Okay, so I, I want to take you back a bit further to your um, childhood because sure. I've heard you say that you felt like you didn't fit in at school and you weren't good at the things that the other kids were good at. But it turns out that you were creative, but you just hadn't realized that yet. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I found yeah. that quite interesting. Sure. You know, um, when you're like the creative weirdo and you can make like the best weirdest face in the class, you're pretty much the star pupil of kindergarten. Uh, and even all the way into first grade, like your teacher is like, whoa, look at how well you colored that coloring sheet. Like, that's amazing. And what a weird voice you're doing. And it's, you know, the whole class is loving it. But as you get older, pretty much everything that I excelled in, uh, was kind of taken away or turned down. So like, um, you know, right now I'm pretty much a professional show and teller uh, with my art and my uh, public speaking, but they got rid of that. Like I think second grade, um, you know, they got, they get rid of recess, they get, they minimize art class um, nearly all the way. And everything that they turned up were things that I just didn't perform that well in or made me miserable. Um, and, and as I was like, even when I got into high school, it just seemed like everything that the world valued were things that I was not that great at. So math and uh, sports and, you know, traditional employment. I had a job, I had a part-time job working at a, a movie theater where I would, I was a cashier and I would just lose so much money um, <laughs> trying to do the math on the fly. And I just hated standing in that cashier's box. I just felt like, um, it just felt like prison to me. And yeah. I, I, and I felt, you know, so my, at, at some point it just became my life's goal to be like, how do I avoid traditional employment? Because it feels like jail. Um, and so the way I've told it in the past is it kind of felt like being a penguin in a pigeon's world. Like, you know, this school, everything in this school is designed for kids that can fly. And uh, as you know, penguins don't fly. And uh, and so I was just stuck, chubby, awkward, bumbling on the ground while everybody else seems to be soaring and, and taking off into adulthood. And it wasn't until I found creativity that I realized that penguins can fly. Because I don't know if you know this, but penguins can fly, just not in the air, but in the water. And if you've ever seen a penguin soaring through the water, they're as graceful as an eagle. And there's just this thing that happened when I discovered, um, you know, independent music and illustration and, uh, you know, transcendental literature and all that kind of stuff in, in about junior year. It was just like completely life changing. I went from feeling like the odd one out to, um, you know, just finding, just coming into my own and, and soaring. Um, and so that kind of, that was the call to adventure that, uh, was the start of how I got to where I am now. I just love that analogy about the penguin. I really do. It's, um, it's brilliant, but I've also heard you say as well that you mentioned something about, um, as kids 
you know, at school being treated as factory models. And I was really interested in what you said about some children being immediately labelled as a problem child, when in fact, they might just simply be an undiscovered creative. So what are your thoughts then on on, um, kids like that, and how schools maybe could find ways to recognise that in them, and then perhaps nurture that? Um, Yeah, so this is something I've thought a lot about. It's like, uh, one of my central passions in life, if not my my driving force, is this idea of neurodiversity. Um, so I'll circle back to the school thing. You just have to let me do my ADHD thing um, of going on. <laughs> Which brings me to neurodiversity. So neurodiversity, if you haven't heard of it, it's just the idea that all of our brains are different and that's a good thing and we should celebrate it. You know, when people talk about neurodiversity, they're often talking about people that are on the spectrum or people with ADHD or people with dyslexia and dyspraxia and all the different things. Um, but to me, celebrating our neurodiversity, leaning into how we are different and how our brains are individually weird is it's really about everybody because every single person has a different kind of brain. You know, their DNA has meant that you, there is literally no other person like you and there never will be. That's a scientific fact. And so, you know, what, what's, uh, the, the, the problem with that is, is that our schools are set up to do the opposite. There, our schools are set up based on factory lines. So, you know, you, I'm sure all of the listeners know about interchangeable parts and, you know, Henry Ford's assembly line and how, um, how it revolutionized manufacturing. And it meant that we could make things really cheap and for everybody. And there was all these really brilliant things that came from that, that alleviated human suffering and enabled human flourishing. It's all fan. There's so many things about it that are fantastic. However, the problem is, and this is, some of this comes from like Seth Godin's work, um, on this topic, but The problem is that uh, we didn't just make interchangeable parts. It wasn't just like, you know, make all the spark plugs the same, make all the wheels the same, make, you know, it wasn't all that. What ended up happening is that same type of thinking seeped into how we think about value and educate people. So we made people interchangeable parts. And the reason is, is that, um, you know, we wanted it to be cheap to replace a human on the assembly line because when it, when a human breaks down, whether it's uh, cancer or depression or they just can't take it anymore, that you know whatever it is, we can just grab that little part and interchange it with another human that can do exactly the same thing. And to maximize that, we built schools that don't bet on our talents or what's different about us. It bets on how we're the same, the most average qualities of a human. We maximize those things. What are the things that nearly every human can do? And let's just bet on that. Let's train that up. But the problem with that is, first of all, it marginalizes a whole group of people that don't do those things. But then even, you know, just as bad is it's not taking advantage of the full capacity of humanity because whether it's divine design or just evolution – Every single human on this planet is different, and that diversity isn't a bug, it's a feature. It is why we have been able to do what we're, we've done, is that every person in the community offers a totally different thing. And so for me, I feel like our education uh, it, you know, should be about unearthing 
what is different about you? What's special about this person and this brain that has never been seen before that can add a totally different thing to the mix? That's the journey of self-actualization. That's the hero's journey. That's what I believe, you know, the first half of life should all be about. Um, do you mind if I just tell you, I know I just said a bunch of stuff, but do you mind if I just tell you a little? <laughs> Go story? for it. Yeah, okay. no. All right. You, you carry on. Okay, I'll just tell. This is my favorite way to explain uh, this principle and 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 why I think it's so paramount to the human experience. And is this idea that you know, if an alien popped out of the ether, out of a space time wormhole, and they had a device, and they said, "Here, take this device. I've got three things to tell you about this thing." First of all, this device is one of a kind in all the universe. That's how precious it is. That's how rare it is. Second of all, the internal mechanisms of this device are the most complex machinery in the known universe. And then the third thing I'm going to tell you about it is what it's for. Now, before the alien can tell you, number three, what it's for, another alien pops out of the wormhole and blasts that alien. And if that happened to you, right, if that was you, you would do everything in your power. You would spend the rest of your life to figure out what number three was. You, ha- you would be desperate. What does this thing do? Mm. Right? If you were in that situation, that's what you'd do. But the thing is, is we are all in that situation. The difference is we don't have a device. We have a brain. Mm. It is one of a kind in all the universe. And it is the universe's most complex internal machinery. And so- yeah. We all have that same opportunity. We are all in that in those shoes to say, how do we figure out what this thing is capable of? And it's worth it's a worthy cause to to spend a lifetime on. And I wish that that's kind of what education was for, um, instead of trying to just make in interchangeable parts. So true. So true. So how did you figure out that you were going to go into illustration after leaving college and you, you create, create quite quirky, bright illustrations? Yeah. So, um, so actually that kind of came before college where I got into indie music and, um, and in America at the time there was all these screen printed gig posters and I just fell in love with all the gig posters and I fell in love even more with like, um, these creative weirdos who had like crystallized their weirdness into a creative voice or a creative style that was like very particular to who they were as a person. And that kind of was the start of my journey of like, I want to do that. I want to figure out how do I uh, crystallize the meanness into a illustration style. Um, And when I went to uh, college though, I feel like I was kind of discouraged and discouraged and kind of thrown off the path because when I went to college, I, I came in with this attitude of like, I really want to use these three years to find my style. And I was met by the people around me with kind of that overly mystical kind of approach to creativity that was like, you don't just find your style, your style finds you. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like it, I think it meant that for a good three to five years, I just quit trying to find my style, trying to find myself in my work. And I think I did a detour of kind of just trying to skip the journey by, you know, betting on trends and, 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 you know, marketing 
And, uh, and that only got me so far, but, um, but yeah, eventually I started saying yes to the actual journey of becoming a good illustrator and becoming an illustrator that only I could in a way that only I could. So do you remember something suddenly clicking? Yeah. With my, my, like with my style and stuff. Yeah. 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 I mean, yes. And so what, what happened was, you know, betting on trends and, and, uh, marketing and emailing tons of blogs and that being kind of my whole creative practice strategy, it worked for a minute, but then right when I graduated, the recession hit. And so all of that, you know, the, the, the trend based stuff and the blogs and all that stuff, it just kind of died off. And I was stuck, you know, with an art degree and, uh, <laughs> you know, I had, we had a kid, I got married, we moved, we used our savings to go to the other side of the world. We, I quit my full-time job and went freelance in that time. And then in overnight, like my entire practice dried up. And for like six months, I couldn't, uh, get an illustration job through the door. Um, and I ended up having to, uh, the funny thing is I ended up having to get a job. The only job I could find, um, that wasn't minimum wage. I had a friend hooked me up with this job and it was at a, uh, juvenile detention center. And so there I was. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, that's, that's like uh, the farest, a far away creative job as you can get, isn't it? Yeah. Well, not all, yes, that, <laughs> but then worse than that, like I had just spent the past like seven years of my life avoiding, trying to avoid traditional employment because it felt like jail to ending up in a jail. In <laughs> and it was, I was just, I was, it was a dark, 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 dark time for me. Um, and eventually, and I actually put, took down my website and I was like, I was actually on a track. Um, I was interviewing and I actually got a job in social work on the back of that. That was like a more serious job. And um, I almost just like packed up and, and left illustration for good. Um, but, you know, something in me uh, and, and there was a whole bunch of pieces to this decided to give it uh, another try. You know, um, I, you know, when I was in that place, and I was desperate. I remembered someone had emailed me from Cincinnati who was running a gallery, who was also an illustrator. His name's Andrew Nyer. And, uh, and in a moment of desperation, I went back to that email and I followed up and I was like, yo, you know, I'm not really practicing right now, but, uh, you know, I'd love to do this thing. He wanted me to bring my adult coloring project to his gallery space and do a collaborative mural that was black and white that people could come, um, color in. And, uh, and so I was like, yo, I'm ready to do this. Let's make it happen. And the day before I went out to draw the mural with him, he called me and he's like, you know, this huge mural that we're making, it's like a giant coloring sheet conceptually. And conceptually, it just doesn't make sense that the public would come in and color it with regular sized markers. Uh, what we need is like giant markers, like five foot giant markers for them to color it in. And I was just like, if you know a wizard uh, <laughs> who can do that kind of sorcery, I'm down for it. But I think you're going to find that making giant markers is damn near impossible. Um, and uh, and he's like, oh, don't worry about it. They'll be there when you get there tomorrow. And I was just like, oh, wow. That's cool. not, that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, he's going to go try to make these and realize that, that it's a fool's errand. And I went and I went to Cincinnati and I showed up to the gallery and there was these huge giant markers there. 
And I was oh, just like, wow. what the heck is going on? And, and uh, you know, we did the show. We kicked it off. Like, we, we hit it off and we became, like, super close friends. And we've done this show a bunch of times since. But um, the, the thing that I think was one of the core breakthroughs for me um, was watching this guy, you know, make these markers, run this gallery, have this illustration practice. And and people would come into the show and pick up these giant markers and just instantly have this giant smile across their face. Like they could, nobody had to tell you that this guy, Andrew was gifted. Like you could see the gift. It was apparent to everybody. And the reason is, is because he didn't skip the journey of crystallizing that weirdness. He didn't, you know, he didn't bet on trends. He didn't just go into marketing. He said yes to the maze and the journey that is finding yourself as a creative person. And I think, you know, it was seeing this person uh, that I saw myself in because we were so much alike that hit, it hit me like I could do this. Like I, I need to say yes to this journey. I need to do it for real. And I often joke that, uh, I don't think I would have seen it. I don't think I would have picked up on it had the universe not given me a massive hint. Um, mm. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Andrew is actually the like grown up professional version of the name Andy. <laughs> <laughs> That's my name. I was like, this guy's like me. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I remember like driving home uh, from Cincinnati and calling my wife and being like, uh, you know, I can't explain it, but I know everything's going to be okay. I met the future me. He's very professional. It's, it's going to work. <laughs> um, and so I, I went home and I, and I just, uh, I decided like, I'm going to, I'm going to do a creative project. I'm going to do a massive creative project and I'm going to do it right. And I'm not going to bet on trends. I'm going to bet on my true self and my real interests and who I was as a kid. And that was a project called Nod, where I did a daily character um, every weekday for a year. And that that was pretty much uh, the thing that set me on the path to what I'm doing today. Cool. So how did you go from there to say getting these big jobs from big brands like Nickelodeon? Yeah. They, so they see your characters or? Yeah. I mean, um, I think I, I left this out, but uh, when I graduated college, you know, I told you I was doing that kind of trendy work yeah. from the yeah. time. And uh, I'd emailed a million blogs and I'd gotten featured on some things. And, um, you know, for a minute it was working out. Like I was getting uh, some decent jobs. And like every month I made more money on illustration than the month before for about a year out of college. And about a year out of college, I got an email this is before Andrew, this is before the juvenile detention center, you know, we're rewinding the tape back to, um, when things were going all right for a minute. And, uh, a year out of college, I got this email from a show on Nickelodeon that wanted me to produce some illustrations to be animated on TV, on Nickelodeon. It was like a once in a lifetime dream opportunity right out of college. And I was freaking out. And I, I, I did every single thing that I knew how to do. I did every trick in my book. Uh, I like to uh, say that, you know, um, you know, the magicians who pull out all of these uh, handkerchiefs out of their, out of their sleeve. And there's just like hundreds in there. Yeah. And, 
Yeah. <laughs> like it, I was trying to pull out all the tricks in my book, but since I hadn't actually gone through the maze and, and gone on the creative journey, I didn't have all those uh, tissues up my sleeve. I only had one. And when you have one tissue up your sleeve, it's not magic. It's just gross. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, the situation I was in. So I, I, gave, I gave all of this time and energy and everything I could. I put it in these final illustrations and I sent it over to this Nickelodeon show. And, uh, and they replied really fast, which if you're in the creative business, you know, is either a really good thing or a really terrible thing. Yeah. And this is what they said about my final illustrations that I put my heart and soul in. Uh, into they said rough drafts look okay looking forward to seeing how things shape up in the final oh, no. oh, damn. and actually like i was i had tried every possible thing that i could do uh to the point where i couldn't think of how to make them any better so i could only reply with something that was like um, those are the finals. Uh, <laughs> very bad. And I, you know, crumbled to a million pieces. And, um, and that was like, that was kind of like one of the last things that happened before all of my work dried up. And, uh, I ended up having to get the job at the detention center. Um, and so, uh, so fast forward about a year later, we do this color me project, this mural with, uh, Andrew. I do this, uh, I start that year long project, um, doing the daily drawing thing. And I also, after that, I do a bunch of other projects um, that are strategic projects to build my skills, find my voice and, uh, and, and show clients how I, how I want to be hired. So I did, uh, I did a project where I did screen printed new covers to books from the public domain. And I, I started a blog where I was writing my own creative articles and illustrating my own articles to show like my editorial illustration skills. Um, and I just did a bunch of stuff like that. And <clears throat> I don't know if it was a year or, or two years after we did that color me project, that mural project, I got an email. Uh, we got an email that said that they wanted to take this color me project to an ex an exhibit in New York city. Um, and so we went to New York city, we did the mural, we met so many of our creative heroes and a bunch of great people came out to the show. Um, but the people that came that were the most interesting to me were a few people from Nickelodeon and, uh, and I met them and we exchanged some information. And then shortly after that, I received an email saying, uh, yeah, saying we would love for you to produce some illustrations to be animated on TV on oh Nickelodeon. My oh my god! You must have you must have exploded when you read that email. How did you feel? I absolutely did. I was freaking out. I was yeah. you know, scared and uh, excited, and I you know even like the poetic symmetry wasn't lost on me at the time. I remember, <laughs> I remember thinking like this is the same dragon. <laughs> really destroyed me just a few years before. Um, but, you know, because I had gone through the journey and I'd, I'd made all these projects, I wasn't the same this time around. So mm, yeah. I I put everything in, you know, I, uh, I joke on stage about this time I had like hundreds of tissues up my sleeve and it was much more magical. Um, 
And, uh, and I, I, you know, I did everything I could. I sent them over the finals and I'm pretty sure that they even replied really fast. And I don't remember what they said, but I know it was something along the lines of, uh, do you want to do some more projects for us? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and they ended up because, you know, this client that was like nearly my undoing became the foundation that I built my whole freelance practice on. And I ended up working with Nickelodeon like 15 times and they became my biggest repeat client. Um, and so that, yeah, so that's kind of story and, and things kind of just snowballed from there. And, and I got to work with a whole uh, bunch of other clients after that. I've heard you say that after a while you began to find that you were basically just tweaking things that have already been done. So how did that affect things, how you felt about working on things? Do you mean like, um, uh, like you know, getting a project and them sending uh you know amends you know and you keep on having to tweak and change and yeah like yeah just like when uh yeah i mean when it comes to changes you know for the first half of my career i actually really liked all the changes because i felt like there was an outside perspective that was calling me to a higher standard than i was able to do myself and also saw it from an outside perspective that I couldn't see myself. But then eventually, you know, I think the whole idea of creativity, the whole foundation of it is your personal taste. And so, you know, I think the first part of your journey is just kind of like laying the foundation for your creative palette. You know, it's this idea of like the only, you know, I I think we think about um, we think about creativity and like the talent of creativity being this thing that you have this natural propensity to do when I think it's really more about your natural inclination and how deep you can receive. So not do, but receive. So like they're kind of the opposite. So, you know, I feel like when we think about creative talent, we think like, someone showing up to a guitar store and just picking up a guitar for the first time and then somehow magically just being able to, you know, play an amazing solo and the whole, uh, whole, uh, crowd gathering around and be like, Whoa, he's never even seen a guitar. Like this is his, you know, purpose. This is his talent. Um, but the truth is it just doesn't work like that. And I think it's less about, um, some propensity or inclination or capacity for uh, supernatural skill and I think it's more about uh, your taste. So it's more about having an ear for music. It's more about having a, a taste for food. It's more about having an eye for what makes good pictures. Hmm. That intuitive taste is what allows you to navigate the micro decisions of making a thing. And so I think halfway through my um, you know, journey up to this point, I started to get really in touch with my own taste. And that's when some of those client feedbacks um, ended up rubbing against the grain and ended up kind of souring my uh, my relationship to that kind of work. And I and I wanted to I kind of at that point diversified to not just being a B two B client based creative, but a B two C you know business to customer, um, business you know artist straight to the audience. Um, creative. And I feel like diversifying what I do in my practice has helped me to stay true and that helped me lead with my own personal taste. Um, 
And so now when clients come to me, I feel like there's a lot more trust involved uh, with, with, with what they want me to create than there was in the past. Does that answer your question? Yeah. yeah. When, you, when you say about business to, uh, to consumer, uh, yeah. customer, so what did you start creating for, for directly for customers? Well, that, that's when I started the podcast. Right. So ah, you know, uh, yeah. up until the podcast, I was just, all of my work was with clients and, um, you know, it was great. Like I, I had in, lo- in lots of ways, it was fantastic. And we, you know, over time we'd built up a good practice with a great client list and, you know, we bought a house on the back of freelance illustration and, you know, that was all really great. That was all before the podcast. And so when I, uh, but when I finally made the podcast, I started to realize that, um, that, you know, there was a time like early on in that process where I had the, uh, two side projects going on at the same time. So I was trying to create my own kids books, like author and illustrate my own kids books and, uh, do this podcast. And I came to this fork in the road because I realized like, I can't keep both of these things going at the same time right now. And I need to pick one to focus on. And it was actually a really hard decision. And I realized that the reason I was wanting, the reason it was even um, like, so kids' books weren't going anywhere at the time uh, for me. And, but the podcast was taking off. And I realized that the conflict that I had internally was about, uh, you know, there wasn't any glory in podcasts. I'm just being, you know, brutally honest. Like I'm not, I'm not so egotistical that that was like right on the surface. It did, it took some inner work to realize my own personal problems, you know, and, and realize like, oh, the reason I want, you know, the reason why I don't want to focus on the podcast is because there's no Caldecott, there's no Oscars, there's no, there's no, you know, my heroes didn't have a podcast because did they you, didn't. Did exist. you just say there's no Oscars for yeah, a podcast? No <gasps> Tara, I don't know, what are we right. doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But but there is this thing. Like I think but but here's what I realized is that all the good creative uh opportunities are in the places where the the roads aren't paved, yeah. you know, booby traps all over the place. It's disrespected. It's, you know, it's looked down on because it's new. Um yeah. that's where all the art is made in your lifetime. And I and I once I kind of noticed that, I realized like Oh, the podcast is art. It's its own art. And I started, and I, I came up with this kind of lens uh, to create through, which was just this idea that anything you treat as art will be. It doesn't mean, matter if you open a restaurant. It doesn't matter if you're washing dishes. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you treat it as art, it will be. There will be an art form to what you're doing. And I think that that was such a huge breakthrough and a real turning point um, to, to what became the podcast as it is today and how it ended up changing my practice and kind of diversifying what I do right now. My income is made up of, you know, uh, things related to the podcast, things related to my shop, things, client work, and now kids books, um, and other books. Um, but yeah, I think that that, that breakthrough in the way that I thought about the podcast, um, was the first steps into, that direct to consumer thing, that thing to, and actually I've, I feel like every artist I would encourage to have a part of their business that is 
um, not client-based because there's so much smoke and mirrors that comes into winning clients. Whereas, you know, the front lines of having to actually develop and deliver uh, to an end user um, and to an audience and to your fans and to your people, like um, that's where like, that's where you really cut your teeth and figure out how to provide actual value that's meaningful. And if you can do that, then you can really, and clients can see that you can do that. They're going to come alongside you and be like, how are you doing that? Can you do that for us? And that's kind of been my practice for the past past uh, three or four years. So alongside your podcast, which should we should mention is called the creative pep talk and i would definitely suggest people check that out because i i love it it's it's very uplifting i think um but you are also an inspirational speaker on stage and a really really good one i must add as well um and i've got to say you know there's one thing doing a podcast because we all know we can edit a podcast so if anything goes wrong you know it's 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 no big deal getting up and standing you know in front of hundreds of people on stage or I don't know how many people you know are watching you but that must be really terrifying so tell me how you felt when you first got up on stage to speak because I would be absolutely terrified. <laughs> I was, you know, you know, actually, no, the first time I wasn't, and I'll explain kind of, there's a, you know, maybe an interesting story here. So like when I first did my like, you know, first couple artist talks uh, shortly after college, I was, I had a lot of confidence because in high school and in college, like I had like managed to every time I had to do like a speech or um or you know give an oral report or something I always did really well on that you know there were like uh oral book reports uh that I got an A on that where I hadn't read the book so I, <laughs> you know I I thought you know what this is going to be a good arena for me yeah um, and but when I went into it uh I just like three or four times in a row in my early career really super bombed. And I don't know if you've ever bombed on stage, but it is one of the most excruciating feelings. In fact, like if you, you know, in terms of science, like uh, it is, it literally feels like death because we've evolved. (laughs) It does because because we've evolved um, to say that if we get rejected by our people, we will get ostracized by the community and we will we will literally die in the wilderness. And so there's just this thing in you that says, if I'm in front of my people, if I'm in front of a group of uh, my peers and they don't like what I'm doing up here, it is equivalent to death. So it, it's a horrible feeling. And I had one in particular, one talk where I was being <laughs> this is so ridiculous. This is like 2010 maybe, right? 2011 where I was actually uh, being heckled and it was, oh, no. yeah. I mean, that's the setup of that talk um, was a miniature talk and it was an environment where that kind of behavior was encouraged. It, it's a long story and right. <laughs> it was a disaster. Uh-huh. But after that, I was like, you know what? Like, I'm not ever doing this again. Like, this is just not for me. It is just, I, this, I was wrong and I didn't. <laughs> Never get on stage ever again because this is excruciating. Um, but I, uh, you know, I, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about something a friend of mine said. Um, his name's uh, Ade Hogue. He's a, a lettering artist, and he's actually a lettering artist that we represent with. I run this. Um, 
I, I co-founded this uh, artist management agency and he's one of our artists and he's, uh, he's really into boxing and he talks about how one of the lessons he learned from exercise is like in, in sports is like nobody goes into the ring the first time expecting to win. Like you don't start a sport expecting to just be amazing at it. Everybody knows you got to work at it. It's like, you got to learn a bunch of stuff. And so for me, you know, looking, I wish I could have said that to myself because I spent a good three or four years, never, you know, refusing to do talks because they were so painful um, because those few, first couple of experiences were so painful. And it wasn't until I did this little community talk uh, in 2014 and I, and because I, you know, I had, I had said no to this opportunity a few times and then um, eventually I was like, all right, I'll do it. And I'm going to prepare like a maniac. And I like did all this research and, and, uh, you know, I, I practiced and all that kind of stuff. And when I did that talk, it, it was like probably at least at that point, the best creative experience that I'd ever had. And I had this and it felt like, oh my gosh, this is a, this is like a huge creative breakthrough. I think something special happened there. But luckily, my wife was in the audience, and uh, and she's just brutally honest in the best possible way. Like, I can trust her opinion. And I thought, you know, there's a million times where I thought I had a breakthrough, and I went to Sophie. I was like, was that a breakthrough? And she's like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> but, but I got off the stage, and she was in the audience, and I was like, was that weird? Like, was something happening there? And she was like, yes, that was super <laughs> weird is happening. And that was that one talk is why I started the podcast and why I started pursuing a career in public speaking. Um, and so, you know, I, since then, it's still been a huge journey of like, um, how do I manage prep with Im improvisational kind of approach to it? Um, and I'm still figuring that out, you know, because I still probably over prep just so that I can avoid the pain of bombing. Um, but yeah. I think that answers your question. <laughs> well, I've got another question for you about sort of sure. learning to be an artist, because when I realized I wanted to be an artist, there was a big part of me that felt that I, I must have that piece of paper that proves that I'm an artist. Uh -huh. And um, it's strange because now I know that that's actually not necessarily true. Um, and yeah. art school isn't not, well, it's not necessarily a good thing for everyone either. So why is it? that you think we as human beings feel like we've got to prove our worth so much to other people? Yeah. That's a really good question. And it's something that I think about a lot, you know, recently um, I've been thinking about, you know, with art and creativity, I think something we don't realize is that everybody is working from a different definition of what creativity is. You know, if I said, what is creativity to you or, or to just someone off the street like that, their first answer would probably be like, I don't know, doing something totally different, something the world has never seen, something completely original. And I think uh, that definition got in my head and it kind of created this imposter syndrome in me for the longest time because, you know, I eventually realized like, that's not creativity to me. That's not what I love about creativity. What I love about creativity is how it's like spiritual sustenance.
to me, it's more like a, a meal for my soul. And, you know, the fact that it's original or, or fresh or different, that's kind of just like, you know, a, a part of the, it's not the main course. That's just like making sure the food isn't expired. You know what I'm saying? It's just hmm. like, uh, it, you know, it's, uh, or it's something different, you know, it's not just pizza again. It's, you know, it's, I'm switching up, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm moving from this thing to the next thing. Like I want to, the reason I love creativity is because my soul needs like storytelling and I need, um, to be reminded of things that are true, which is kind of the opposite of totally original. Right. And so I think that what happens is if you don't realize that everybody has a different working definition of creativity, every, every person has a different reason to make creativity, that stuff will get in your head, you know, because if you're a basketball player and you're constantly uh, surrounded by, you know, excuse my American, but soccer players, um, football players, um, if you're surrounded by those people all the time, and you start working from their definition in your game, you're going to start feeling self-conscious about touching the basketball with your hands. But there's no other way to play basketball. Like you can't play basketball by soccer rules. And so you got to be aware of, you know, there were so many times early on where I was taking on other people's definitions of what qualified as art. And that kind of stuff gets in your head. It distracts you. It's where imposter syndrome comes from. Um, and I think you just gotta, you just gotta remember that you need to figure out, you need to tap into why am I obsessed with this? What does it mean to me? What's my definition of creativity? You know, we all know this, like, you know, you, you know, how many of us have had a grandma that's like, you know, mine, I have a new neighbor and they're, they, they're an artist. You would just love them. And you're like, no grandma, please. Like, I'm probably not going to get along with some random person who also claims to like art because everybody has a different definition yeah. of what art is. And it's really yeah. important for you to understand it's for some people, you know, um, fancy pants people believe that uh, you got to have this special certificate for it to be real art. But you know, that whole mentality is often just, uh, you know, self sustaining self protection, because it's just, you know, if they don't be little people that don't have the certificate, their certificate means less, right? Like, that's how they keep the value on their certificate is by pretending like it matters. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've always said, I don't think necessarily um, art school makes someone a good artist any more than not going to an art school makes someone a bad artist. So sure. it's just whether you're creative or not. <laughs> that's, that's the yeah, end of it, it, isn't it? it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, if I kind of always tell people like if if you have for some reason you can not go into debilitating debt and you can go to art school. You know, your parents are paying for it. You got a scholarship, something like that. Go for it. Like there, it's a great, it can be a great time where you're in a, a concentrated group of people that are focused on the same kinds of things and it's yeah. good for finding your people. But the fact of the matter is, especially with the internet these days, like you, you can find those people and you can self-educate uh, just as well for a fraction of the cost. And so if you can't, if you're going to go into debilitating debt by going to art school, do not do it. Like it is a fact that that burden of a debt is the reason why you will not be able to be a professional artist. Mm. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. What advice have you got for someone who, who knows they're a creative, but hasn't really found their niche or where they fit in yet? Yeah. That, Great question, because I think this is a uh, 
This is one of the the central questions and one of the things that keeps people from uh, from trying it. And, and I here here's kind of how I think about it. You get there's basically two schools of thought. And whenever you have two schools of thought, you just instantly got to reject it because the world is not black and white and binary. You always, always introduce a spectrum to that. So there's two schools of thought. Either you stick at one thing and you never give up. That's called grit. You know, uh, you pick something and you stick at it. The other side is always be trying new things, always be pivoting, right? So which one should you do? The truth is, of course, both. Uh, the, the truth is for me, the best way to get the best of both of those worlds is to do project-based, um, experiments because a project-based experiment has grit and pivoting just baked into the essence of what a project is. So this is how it looked with something like my podcast. So I would, um, you know, I, I had, I had decided before I started the podcast that I wasn't going to just experiment. I wasn't going to just dip my toes and see if magic instantly happened. If I was destined to be a podcaster, you know, if, you know, I did an episode and it went viral, that's how I'd know I was, I was destined to be a podcaster. No, I did it through the lens of a project because I wanted to balance that grit with the, you know, the pivoting. And so I said, before I ever started the podcast, I had made a decision. I'd done my research and said, this is my best possible guess of the next creative project that I should pursue and, and spend my time on. And therefore, I'm going to do 100 episodes, which means basically two years of podcasting, one podcast a week, uh, before I have enough data to know whether this is my thing or not. And so that's why I love about the constraints of a project. You can, you know, but um, when I did the daily drawing project, I did the same thing. I said, you know, I'm going to draw 260 of these, one for every weekday of a year because I'd done my research and I'm ready to bet. I'm ready to keep swimming in that direction for a period of time. And then once I've, I've collected enough of that data, you know, I've, I've really gave it a shot. I put it out there. I've collected results. Then I can step back and say, is this on my path? Am I on to something? You know, I had a project where I, t I mentioned earlier this idea of creating um, new covers for books from the public domain. Uh, and this was me trying out, seeing, you know, is it my thing to do book covers for novels, illustrated book covers? Mm. And um, I did this project and I, I said, I'm going to do, um, I'm going to do so, like something like five covers and I'm going to screen print them. And, uh, you know, I got a few covers in and it was only, it wasn't until like, the third or fourth cover that I released and uh, someone commented online, uh, oh, Moby Dick, I love that. I love your cover. Uh, how did you like the book? Why would I read the book? I read novel. I don't read fiction. And I was like, oh, duh. <laughs> this is not my path. What the heck am I thinking? I don't read, I, I read like one uh, novel a year. Right. Like that. And, but it wasn't until, you know, you actually have to go, uh, uh, go do things and fail before you actually get enough data to know the truth. And, and that, pro that project was not a failure because it was one thing crossed off the back of my mind that said, maybe I could do that thing. Mm. It was one, it'd be like, oh, you know what? No, I don't have to think about that anymore because I tried it and it, it wasn't for me. 
But I love this idea of like project-based stuff. It, it gets the best of grit and pivoting. And, and on top of that, you know, I'm a big believer that you're never going to find who you are and what you're capable of by just sitting in a room and thinking, who am I? Like that, that's not <laughs> you know, I talk a lot about, um, you know, what's the difference between TV, Smallville, Clark Kent, and, uh, you know, big screen, universe saving Superman. Like there, what's the difference? The first answer is like, well, the powers because like Clark Kent, uh, Smallville Clark Kent can't even fly. The big screen one has, you know, all these powers. But the truth is they have the same, they have the same powers. What they don't have is the same self-knowledge. And the way that Clark Kent becomes Superman isn't sitting in a, you know, guidance counselor's office doing a career aptitude test or sitting on a clock and thinking, who am I? He finds these powers by going out there in the world and trying to save people. And one time he's trying to save someone, he falls off a building. He fails only to find out that he can fly, right? So that's how you find it. You do, you go do, you work it out in the work. You don't work it out in your head. Um, and that, yeah, that's, that's even the case for making huge mistakes and doing projects that were a total dead end. I just love the way that you explain things, all those little analogies, and they make so much sense. But you, Thank you. you've, you've got um, a skill share course, do you? Is that yeah. right? And, and you, teach, yeah, you teach creative people how to find their niche and how to break yeah. into the work that could lead to their dream job. So, you know, how did that come about and what, how do you think that can help people who are listening? These are such good questions. Thank you so much. <laughs> great. Uh, you're just like setting up um, so many so many good things for me because these are all the things I talk about. Um, uh, so yeah, I have a Skillshare class. Um, I'm actually secretly working on another one. Um, oh, uh, you heard it here first. You heard it here um, first. <laughs> uh, but uh, but the, the class that's out there right now, I'm so passionate about and it's been amazing. It's uh, the it, It's gone down really well. And um, it's all about building a strategic project to orchestrate uh, a creative break in your in your creative practice. And um, the the idea that one of the central ideas is about finding your position in the market. You know uh, how how are you going to position yourself, um, and how do, how are you going to communicate to the people that you want to hire you that you're perfect for the job? And so the that kind of comes into this idea. You can think about it like a target, like a bullseye. So there's a big circle that's a, that's industry. That's the industry you're in. You probably know your industry, you know, illustration, design, music, film, writing, you know, they're the big, big industry um, that you fit in. Most people know that. Now, when I was teaching at art school, I kept showing them this, uh, these videos of artists that I felt like got it. You know, I had this intuitive sense of like, these are the types of people that you need to look up to and learn from. And, uh, but I hadn't quite codified a framework to explain what it was they got. So I was just showing them videos, hoping that, hoping that it would kind of transfer through osmosis. And at some point, some cocky kid was like, uh, Man, why do you keep showing us these videos at the start of every class? Like, I'm sick of watching these people. <laughs> and I'm really grateful for this person because he was right. Like, I I hadn't really framed it and I really hadn't explained it. And I it was one of those like classic teacher at the blackboard kind of moments where I was like, I'm all right. I'm going to try to explain to you why I think, you know, what all these people have in common 
And I realize that, you know, every person I'm showing them, you could tell me what is their industry, but not just that. You could tell me what part of the industry do they exist in, aka their market. And then you could also within that market where they fit in, you could tell me how they stand out, which is their niche. And so you can think about it like a bullseye. Industry is the big circle. A part of that industry inside of it is your market. And a little tiny circle, the bullseye in the middle of that circle is your niche or your niche for the British people here. Um, <laughs> sorry. I know it's structuring your language. Um, but but uh, that's how, and I, you know, I would show them someone and be like, look, this is a designer. They're in, they're in that industry. They're in the market of lettering. And within the market of lettering, they do this very particular subversive yet uh, ornate lettering. And that's how you know this artist. And every artist that's your favorite artist, that's a well-known established artist, you can map this out for them. And they've done projects to communicate. This is who I am to the world. And, and, and they've perfect. And, and, and so, um, so that's the start of the class. That's a little, that's a little preview, but that's kind of how I think about everything. I go back to that all the time. Like the next creative pursuit I'm doing, what's my industry? What's my market? What's my niche? You know, at the start of uh, the podcast, my industry was illustration. You know, my market was advertising illustration. And within that market, I was the guy with the podcast. But I always kind of had the intention of flipping that on its head. I always had the intention of moving away from that to the market uh, or the industry of public speaking or the industry of podcasting. And within that industry, it's like the self-help podcast. And within that self-help podcast world, I'd be the illustrator. Like, oh yeah, how, oh, he's got the self-help podcast. It's about, you know, who, who is that guy? Oh, he's the illustrator, right? So like, I'm always working through that matrix and that framework to figure out you know, what should I be making next and how can I communicate to the people that I, I want to give me opportunities, what kind of opportunities to give me. Right, I, love, right. I love your Skillshare course, but I have a question for you. This is, this is yeah. a personal thing, really. So, 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 not that personal. But say, <laughs> say you were an artist and you weren't mm -hmm. looking, because I could very much see your Skillshare course would work for someone, say, if you're an illustrator, you want to get into the illustration business. But say you were an artist, you just want to yeah. sell your work to the end customer. Yeah. How would you work it for that? Yeah, so well, I would do the same thing. So I would say the industry is the fine art world, right? Yeah. Whatever that might mean. And then within the fine art world, basically your market is where are people like you earning a living within that market. Because within the fine art world, there's a huge, vast array. There's lots of movements and groups of people that earn a living in completely different ways. There are people that earn all their money from doing uh, you know, uh, craft markets and, and, and art markets. There's all, people that earn their living through the gallery world. There's people that earn their living 100% through Instagram. So you still have to find where people like me, doing the kind of art that I want to be doing, relatively speaking, where do I fit into that? So that's the thing you got to identify. Then you say, well, then how do I stand out with where I fit in? And so then you start defining your own niche within that. So that process is all the same. Then on top of that, then the next thing you do is you take that bullseye and you kind of summarize it with a goal because you know, your subconscious needs a, a lot clearer of a target than I'm in the industry of illustration. I'm in the market of kids books and I'm the kids book maker who does stuff about pizza and dreams. Like, you know, that's a lot of information to be like, 
all right, subconscious, make it happen. Like you got to have, you got to have a more dialed in specified goal that gets you out of bed in the morning. So then I always recommend saying, you know, create, identify a goal. And usually that can come from uh, your market and say, you know, what does it mean to make it in this market? So if we're talking about, uh, let's talk about the world of entertainment, the industry of entertainment and the market of comedy. Let's talk about stand-up comedy. What does it mean to make it as a stand-up comic in 2020? It probably means having a, a special, you know, whether it's an Amazon special, Netflix special, whatever. But even, you know, it's probably worthwhile to then say, well, what about with someone with my niche? Because maybe my niche in comedy is uh, subversive comedy that, uh, you know, is left of center and, you know, off, off kilter. Well, then maybe Netflix special isn't the perfect goal to summarize all of that. Maybe the goal that you want to pick is uh, a, a smaller indie uh, network, wh whatever that might be. But that goal then summarizes everything else. But you can do that for any market, any industry. There's always a standard. There's always a benchmark. And you, when you figure out that benchmark, you can set your targets there and you can build a project that uh, mirrors that goal directly so that you don't have to wait for them to pick you, but you can prove that you're the perfect fit and get the ball rolling that direction. Does that make sense? Is there yeah, any blind yeah. that you're yes, yeah, worried about? Yeah. So, so talking of goals, what are your creative goals for the future? Ooh, that's good. Um, uh, you know what? I have actually, um, I'll be a little bit cryptic and then I'll just answer it. Um, but my, my little cryptic thing is I had an opportunity start about a year ago. That's kind of, it's not a sure thing, but it's something that's kind of been in the works that um, actually was not in my plans. But it was um, it was kind of connected to some deep dreams uh, from when I was a kid and a teenager, and it just it you know it kind of blew open my goals wide open. And so for part of me, I'm I've kind of been in a season over the past year that you know as awesome as it is to be in those rooms do, talking about these things, um, it kind of it was the first time in a decade where. I was like, I don't know what's going to, I don't know what I want to happen. I don't know what's going to, if this happens, I don't know where I go from there. I'm just happy to be on the, the journey. And I think that's a good place to be. You know, I think that's where I hope all creatives get to at some point in their career where they make enough momentum where it kind of gets away from them. You know what I mean? And, and you're just like, well, let's ride it. Let's see where these waves take us. That's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, on top of that, uh, the other thing that I kind of, um, have been, you know, uh, the thing that I'm still kind of steering the ship with is I'm very interested in, uh, I, you know, I'll probably, I hope that I do the creative pep talk podcast till the day I die. Cause I love talking to creative people about creative practices and, and stuff like that. But I also have, you know, recently realized with my writing and my, my talks that they're less like self-help talks and they're less about creative careers and they're more about just life stuff. And so they're, they're you know, my uh, buddy and I who do similar things for a living and do similar kinds of talks, we, we say it's not stand-up comedy that we want to do. It's the opposite of that. And he coined the term lay down tragic, which is the exact opposite of stand-up comedy. Um, so <laughs> what we're doing right now is I want to be a lay down tragic. I want to be somebody who, um, I want to write books that are, um, uh, you know, one part parable and one part 
memoir and I want to do, you know, the talk I've been working on for the past couple of years, um, you know, on the road doing different things is, is more like a one man show than like a illustration talk. Um, and I, you know, saying all that stuff is really scary and weird and, and sounds completely insane to me. Um, but that's kind of the season I'm, I'm in. So that that's kind of where I'm exploring next. That's the fun part of being a creative, isn't it? I think um, it's like you never know where you're going to end up and you never know what's around the corner, do you? That's, the, that's what's fun about it, I think. I completely and utterly agree. Yeah. So where can people find out more about you? The best place to start is probably on Instagram. You can just follow me at Andy J Pizza. And definitely your podcast, check out. The creative, yeah. the creative pep talk because it's fantastic. Yeah, you can find that wherever podcasts are proliferated. You can Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on my site, creativepeptalk.com. Yeah. yeah. And um, we have one more question for you, and it's the most important question of all. Okay. What is your favorite pizza topping? Ooh, <laughs> that is, you know what? I can't tell you that, but I can tell you what uh my perfect pizza is because it's not just one topping there's a there's a whole thing you know i want i want the uh um, don't say pineapple don't say pineapple i will not in <laughs> fact i am staunchly against anyone who says pineapple goes on pizza you're you're fundamentally changing the dish and i'm not here for it. i'm not, not going to be party to such things but i will say that i love a good wood wood fired pizza classic base you know we're talking um you know like how they do it back in italy and that we got r- plain red sauce yeah i want some mozzarella goat cheese, arugula, which they say rocket in, in Britta in England, um, you know, pepperoni, jalapeno. That That's kind of my perfect oh, pizza. Sounds delicious. Uh, my, I, mine is anchovies and olives. Yum. Ooh, I can <laughs> that. <laughs> anyway, it has been so much fun talking to you. It really has. It's been um, it's been great. And we Thank really, you so much. really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to chat to us been very uplifting thank you so much for you know your fantastic questions and i had an absolute blast (laughs) all right then well hopefully we'll talk again soon and um yeah we'll have a great rest of your day thank you see ya thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode and if you did perhaps you'd like to share it and leave a review for us on itunes 